Let's open in prayer, Father. Thank you for today that uh, we can meet with you. Lord, that each and every day, every moment, we can boldly go to that throne of grace, that you hear us. You desire to hear us. So, Lord, we lay our brothers and sisters uh, before you that are in the hospitals, those that are affected, whether they be here, another island, a mainland, wherever they would be. We pray for the nurses. We pray for the doctors. We pray for protection upon them. But Lord, in the midst of this time, I thank you that you're using this really for your glory, that many have come into the, the kingdom. Many have responded to you worldwide, and we thank you for that because, Lord, we know that while we may not see it here, there is a revival going on. There's a revival in Iran and many different places in the world. So, Lord, today we ask that you would equip us, that you'd open up our hearts to see you, see you in all of your glory today. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews as we continually go through. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to finish it today, verses 14 and 16. But I'm going to begin in verse 12 and 13, the verses that we looked at last week. That's Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. And it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, of both the joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open, laid bare in the eyes of him whom we have to do. You know, when the author was writing this, they didn't stop as we stopped last week. And, well, we're going to pick up in verse 14. The thoughts of the people would have left them hanging, though. They would have been terrified of God's judgment. That God sees their heart, knows their heart, knows what they're going through. And terrified. The first type of people are those that really want to honor God. They're not perfect. They're imperfect people being made perfect. They're the workmanship of Jesus Christ. They submit to Jesus. When they fail or fall short, they confess their sins and he's faithful and just to cleanse them of all unrighteousness. They're quite aware that he is on the throne, that he is sovereign, he knows all things. He knows before we speak, he knows the length of your days, and nothing surprises him that's happening. But there's a second group that the writer is writing to here as well. It's those who want to sit on the fence. They're not willing to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. And that's true in every congregation. There are those that come. There are those that hear the word of God, but there's nothing that ever happens. It's never mixed with faith. They, they never come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Sometimes week after week, Year after year, they hear the word of God and, and nothing ever happens. 
I was fortunate many years ago to be in a church. I was an usher in the back of the church. There was someone that I knew, a couple, an elderly couple. They were in their 80s at the time. And, and there was an altar call this week. And the older man went forward. He held up his hand and then moved forward at a certain point. And I believe that he just needed to maybe confess some sin, not really knowing him, because sometimes we don't let people get close enough really to know us. He had been in that church 20 years, but it was the day that he received and acknowledged Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. A nice person. But if the Lord would have come back during that time, he would have been in hell. And Jesus talks about hell more than any other author in the Bible. But the author, as he begins our text today, he begins to reassure them. Reassure them even though Yeshua, that is Jesus, and I'm saying Yeshua because if you remember, it's written to a Jewish group of professing believers. They profess their faith. They acknowledge in their mind, when Jesus will one day be the judge, and now he is the intercessor, the advocate. In fact, let me just read again. Hebrews 7, 25, it's not coming up on the screen, but what it says is he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able. He's willing. When a person draws near, when a person calls on his name. And that looks many different ways in our life because we can draw near as, even as we were worshiping this morning. As you're singing a song, it can be more than words. We focus on singing and we get excited about singing, but really what it is is that if we're really worshiping him, it's in spirit and truth. That means our spirit is connecting with him, whether the words come out of our mouth or not. It means we desire him. We want to know him. We exalt him in our heart. If we exalt him in our heart, then we will exalt him in life and everything we do. We will want to talk about him. He's encouraging these that are sitting on the fence to press on. You, you can't stay on this fence. You will miss it. There are consequences. He's encouraging them to hold firmly to the faith they profess. See, if they profess it, then they will live it out. It's not enough just to say it. They must be a, a doer of the word believing in such a way that they're trusting the Lord and Savior. Well, let's look at our text in verse 14 through 16. And it begins with this word, therefore, going back to what he said, the things that we just mentioned, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence 
to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. The encouragement is to draw near with this confidence. The author has been explaining who Jesus Christ is. He's Yeshua, but he's much more than just Yeshua as far as the way they think. See, the Holy Spirit is continuing to appeal to these Jewish believers who are professing believers who have not trusted Jesus Christ completely. Well, what does it look like to trust Jesus Christ completely? It means to enter into his rest. It means to believe him at his word. It means whatever is going on in life that we can have peace, a calmness. We don't have to worry. We don't need to fret. It doesn't mean we're not going to be excited about a situation, concerned about a situation, but ultimately we know our lives are in his hands. Our destiny is in his hands. That this life is only temporal. It's likened in James to a vapor. It's here today and tomorrow it's gone. He's been saying in effect, you know the dissatisfaction that you've had in this Judaism, and even with your own lies, Jesus Christ is superior to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses. And there's a danger of not trusting in him. They've never pressed forward. They've never taken what they know and mixed it with faith. And he would be speaking to this same group in this same way. They can listen to a message week after week and still never make a commitment to Jesus Christ. But he's saying there's a, a danger if you move from week to week this way. The danger of hell is real. It's unavoidable if you do not trust him and him alone. I say that and it's very important to understand when we become believers in Jesus Christ, we trust in Christ, the finished work alone. Not in our works, not in anything we do, but in Jesus Christ, what he has done on the cross, it is finished, he's raised from the grave. And we have so much to look forward to. Now Jesus spoke about hell more than any other author in the Bible. The word he uses for hell is Gehenna in the Greek. Gehenna. The Valley of Hinnom is another term for it. It's known as a, the place of abomination to the, the Jewish people. The Valley of Hinnom is, is near Jerusalem. It's outside the, the walls of the city, the old city. It's a very deep cavern at the far end. It's a place that Israelites had sacrificed their own children to the god Molech for prosperity. Later became this place known as the place of abomination. It was made a receptacle at meaning 
for the rubbish. It means that people just simply took the rubbish and they dumped it in that valley. Dead people were dumped in that valley. There was a fire burning continually, a smolder, whether it be the body or just the rubbish, a stench that was over that whole place. It's no wonder that this and everything around it, as I describe it, becomes this metaphor of hell when Jesus describes hell. It's this very word that he uses when he describes hell. The word occurs in the New Testament and every case is properly translated the word hell. And it became known as the, the boat, known as the, the boat of the lost spirits. Let me read Matthew 13, verse 41 and 42. It begins with that phrase, the Son of Man, referring to that messianic title. Will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all the stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness, that is, those in unbelief, and their actions show that in lawlessness, will throw them into a furnace of a fire in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is describing another scene for really hell. See, those Jewish people would have been thinking about that. They were sitting on the fence. There's a, there's a hell, a real hell. There is a judgment coming. And they normally would think, well, that, that's for the Gentiles. But it's for every person that does not acknowledge Jesus Christ, and that's important to understand. Let's look together, though, at the, at the positive message. For many people, I have only one message, and that's why I want to go to the positive message. And, and, and as I started, it, it, it seems I have this negative message. But really, that's the message that some people have. It's just hell and brimstone, hell and, and damnation. But what we're going to see today, it, salvation is, is more than just keeping a person out of hell. There's so many that make a decision, say a sinner's prayer, and they just don't want to go to hell. They've heard about it, but they don't know him. They've never been saved. They've deceived themselves. The very place they don't want to go is the place they're going to go if they don't acknowledge Jesus Christ. Exceedingly more than you could ever imagine is being with the Lord for all eternity. Being in heaven. It's interesting, though, that many people through the years have, have asked that question after they've said a sinner's prayer. Well, what now? Okay, I'm saved, but what now? There must be more to it than this. And some will chase after signs and gifts. Some will chase after prosperity and healing movement. Only a remnant will lock on their faith, onto the author and finisher of faith, Jesus Christ. They know that he is enough. No matter what is going on in this world. But also, it, it means being saved really on to God. It's relational with God, they, that you have this relationship, that you can boldly go to this throne of grace 
that he hears your prayers, he desires to hear the prayers. That you begin to look as he looks at this world. You begin to grieve over the things that he grieves. And it's relational in this sense of the world because it's totally different. We, we have different views. We know without Christ, we know what the end is. Again, being drawn to him, coming to him. It's important to understand that we have a peace with God for the first time. We were enemies with God. Not only do we have peace with him, we have a peace from him. When everything is falling apart, there's a calmness. There can be self-control. There can be peace. As we just sit at his feet. As we adore him. Knowing that we've been reconciled to God, and we have this new life. It, it, it's totally different. It has different values, different purposes, different desires. We have a reason to live. While people are, are, are looking at everything that's falling apart, we're, we're looking at the world differently. Some even go so far that they're so obsessed with prophecy, they're depressed. And that Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment of prophecy. We know the better thing is to go and be with the Lord, but it's, it's needful that we be here. What does the world need? Besides Jesus Christ, what do they need to see more than anything else? Is mature, real Christians. That have peace. That are kind. They're loving. They're compassionate. They're not stressing, fretting. Worrying, being tossed and turned every wind of doctrine. Not church hopping, they're just being the church. They're congregating, they're worshiping. They're in the word and they're continuing the word as, just as he said. They've received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and, and he is enough. Their desire is simply to enter into his rest Like a little child that has fallen, got hurt, and mom wraps her arms around and, and just mom just hugging him, her dad just hugging him. It's like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. I know. When a person receives Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, they enter into this rest. Not only because of that fear of, of judgment, but really because of the beauty of the Lord. See, this is something that we don't always think about is the, the beauty of the Lord. Oh, he's father time and he has long white hair. No, there, there is a beauty when you come to know him. When you know him, his, his attributes, his love and his grace and his mercy, that he's there and he cares for you. Not only because of the wrath, but be, simply because of that grace. Not only because he's the judge, but he's merciful. He's faithful. Day in and day out and year after year, he, he's there. He's taking care of those needs. 
when I think of the, the beauty of the Lord, when I, when I want to just really kind of rest on the Lord. One of the passages I love to read is from Psalm 27, and I'm going to read the first six verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries, my enemies, they stumbled and they fell. And though the host encamp against me, my, my heart will not fear. The war rise against me, and in spite of this, I will be confident. One thing I desire, I ask from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in his temple. For in that day trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In that secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He'll, he'll lift me up on the rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies, above and around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And I will sing, yes, and I will sing praises to the Lord. There's much comfort, much encouragement, much reminder. Lord, I... This is the place I want to live. This is the place I want to dwell. I want to dwell in your presence. This is the life that he's called you and me to. Not to fret, not to worry. He's got it. He's going to take care of it. And today there's three truths about Jesus Christ. As a as our great high priest, I want to call your attention to, I'd like you to note the first point we're going to look at in a second is his perfect priesthood. His perfect person or his perfect humanity. And his perfect provision. Every believer should know these and, and find comfort and strength in a time of need. Because he's perfect in every way. He's God's only true priest. He's the high priest. Oh, there are many priests, but he is the true high priest. There's been many others. There's been many other examples of faithful men in the past. They were types, they were shadows, even symbols of the priesthood. There are men like Adam and Abel and Abraham and Joseph and Joshua and Melchizedek. And David, and the list goes on of many faithful men, but they were only types, only shadows, only symbols. And the best is yet to come. Because one day you and I will be with him in a way that we can't in this temporal body. But we can be aware of that presence now with him. Well, let's look at this perfect priesthood. In verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. It's all throughout the book of Hebrews that the high priest, Jesus Christ, is exalted, lifted on high. There's no other book in the Bible that exalts Jesus more than the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we see the, the one who has made purification for our sins. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, he's a merciful, faithful high priest. 
In chapter 3, verse 1, he is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. When we get to chapter 7 through 9, it's going to focus primarily upon Jesus' high priesthood. But here today in our text, he's simply called the great high priest. None like him. The priests in ancient times, they were appointed by God. They were mediators between God and, and people. And as our high priest, they could offer sacrifices in the Old Testament. And that would only be once a year on Yom Kippur that will come shortly. What is the Day of Atonement to most people as they understand it? For all the sins of the people will be brought symbolically into the Holy of Holies. Their sins would be passed on from one year onto another year. No one else could go in except for the high priest, and he alone, pointed by God, represented God before the people and the people before God. The background you might note in your text is Leviticus 16. First, the high priest could enter in to the Holy Holies to offer a sacrifice. And first he had to offer a sacrifice for himself. See, because he was a sinner, he had to, again, give a sacrifice for himself before he could offer a sacrifice for the people. And he can only stay in the presence of God's Shekinah glory for a moment. Only while he's offering that sacrifice. See, to enter into that Holy of Holies, that was the place that God said he would meet them. It was there the mercy seat. That God said he would meet them there. It was there that, again, the Shekinah glory would be there. The presence of God would be there. The priest needed to pass through three areas, either in the tabernacle or the temple, depending what existed at the time. He took the blood and went through the, the door of the outer court and then in and through the holy place and then finally into the holy of holies. He didn't stop. He didn't sit down. He didn't delay. In fact, as soon as the sacrifice was made, he was left and out of there. And this went on every year year after year, another Yom Kippur was necessary. Between these years, sacrifices day in and day out, thousands of sacrifices were made to produce of all the animals. The process never ended, was never completed, because the priesthood was not perfect. The sacrifices were not perfect. But Jesus Christ, our high priest, after he had made one-time sacrifice, that is on the cross, he passed through three areas as well. It's interesting because, again, he passes through the heavens, the scripture says there, and the Bible lists that there are three heavens. Again, it's the atmosphere around us, where the birds fly, then there's the stellar heaven, which is in outer space. And finally, that third heaven is mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 4. 
That's the place where God is. That's the place that you and I will be one day in the very presence of God. But today, you can be there in spirit. You can stop, ponder, think about, focus on the time that you will be with him. It's something that I don't think that we do enough just to sit and think about being with him. Being in a world that is so different than what we know here. See, Jesus went where God was. And he was God himself. He simply, and his glory, dwells in that third heaven, the Holy of Holies. Jesus did not have to, to leave. The sacrifice was made once. He, he doesn't come back and offer it again, but many try and think that he does that. The sacrifice was perfect. The high priest was perfect. He was without sin. Again, he sat down for all eternity at the Father's right hand. In Hebrews 1, verse 3. I love it in John 17, 4 and 5. Jesus is still alive. The, again, he has this high priestly prayer. He's speaking again in, in future tense. He says, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with you with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Knowing that he's going to be going to the cross and then being taken to be with the Lord forever. Got to finish your work. The question for you and me is, have you finished the work that God has called you to do? Yeah, every one of us have a work prepared before the foundation of the world. It may be just speaking to one person life, encouraging one person, but we're called to do that. As the Lord uttered these words, he was speaking as if he had already died, buried and risen again. He had glorified the Father by his sinless life, by his miracles, by his suffering, by the work, finished work of the cross. Everything the Father had given him to do. He made perfect atonement for our sins. Look on the screen with me, Hebrews 9, verse 11 and 12. But when Christ entered as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the, the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not this creation, not through the, the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Christ died once for all. Our great high priest did not pass through the, the tabernacle into the temple, but he passed through the heavens to be with the Father. Notice with me again in your text, Hebrews 4.14, therefore since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now it uses Jesus' name, he, he is, that's his, speaks of his humanity, and then the Son of God, that he is God. He's fully God and fully man. Let's hold to this fact. You can't sit on the fence. You, you, you have to acknowledge it. There were eyewitnesses knowing what he has done. Now, every true believer will 
demonstrate their confession. Notice again, the end, let us hold fast to our confession. Well, how do, how do we hold fast to that confession? It, it really begins with this fact that we'll continue in the word. We'll continue in that fellowship. You'll be holding fast to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Not just a, a good person and not a moral person, but they'll be hanging on to him, locked on to him. This emphasizes the human side, again, of, of believers' security. True believers hang on to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I remember when I was younger and my son was very young and I would hold his hand and we would get to a corner. We got across and cars are racing by and he'd want to lunge out there and I would hold him back. He was holding my hand, yes, but I was the one that was restraining him. I was the holding him. And God is holding you. And there are times, just like my son, that we want to jump out. We want to do this. We want to do that. And we want to run away. And he is the one that's really hanging on, even though we're holding on in this sense. Well, there's our part. God's part and our part. He holds on. We hold on to him. This brings us to the end, really, of the Jewish priesthood and the sacrifices. See, Jesus was crucified less than 40 years before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. And with, the, again, the temple being destroyed, the only place that sacrifices could be made, there have been no sacrifices till this present time. Because of this, there's no need for a Jewish priesthood anymore. God has brought it to an end. There are those that are trying to, to have sacrifices, to slay animals, but not the way God planned it, and, and they're really taking things into their own hands. And God will deal with them. Because there's no need of a Jewish priesthood since that time. Yom Kippur is still, again, celebrated as a holy day, the, the highest holy day for those in Israel, but no priests are involved. Go back and look at Leviticus 16. A requirement, but, but they can't. There's no sacrifices, no priests, there's no temple. It's been almost 2,000 years. Without the shedding of the blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Blinded by the God of this world? Yes, many but also blinded for the sake of the Gentiles so they can come in the kingdom. Yet God has been opening up their eyes, a remnant here and there. Those who truly want to believe, want to know the truth that will set them free. It's also an end to all the, the ritualistic priesthoods and sacrifices. Never has there been a, a Christian priesthood in the way that you would see in the Old Testament ever established by Christ or the apostles, never. But interesting, I, what I like is Peter refers to the church, to all believers as a holy priesthood. In fact, a royal priesthood. It's different. It's a new type of priesthood. In fact, let me read from 1 Peter 2.5. You, as living stones, being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, Offer up spiritual, notice, sacrifices, acceptable God through Jesus Christ. Living stones means there's a testament. Our lives are to be a, a testimony to the world. When you're living as Christ would live, 
You are a witness to the world. You are ministering to the world. And it's interesting. Let me go on to 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. People for God's own possession, so that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. Now, if you're talking to a messianic group of people, they say, well, this is to the Jews. Well, they're the only holy nation as far as biblically, that's true. But here he's talking also to the church. We are a holy nation in a spiritual sense, not in the United States or any other country, but a spiritual nation, much higher than any physical nation could be. The Christians, as God's redeemed, are, are types of priests is what he's saying. We have a responsibility, and that responsibility is bringing God to other people. Yeah, it's, it's a holy priesthood. That's what we do, is we, we bring people to God. How? Well, well, by preaching the Word of God, by evangelism, by simply teaching the Word of God, by living a life, mature life, showing people what a, a true Christianity looks like, biblical Christianity, selfless, esteems others higher than ourselves, is not wanting and taking, it's giving, giving our lives a away is what we do. It's a special priesthood. A system of sacrifices, either taught or recognized in the New Testament, is different than the Old Testament. In fact, look with me in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So God doesn't want a dead sacrifice. He doesn't want an animal slayed. He wants you to live your life for him. This is how we become, again, priests in our communities. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7 through 12. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which you offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this will we have sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering a time after the time and the same sacrifices, which came never take away sins. And he, having offered one sacrifice for the sins one time, sat down at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus puts an end to it. His sacrifice was once and once for all. See, any formal religious priesthood on earth, it simply is mockery of God. Because Jesus has done it all. It's paid, it's finished. To do anything else, to try and exalt some other, raise up, resurrect some other type of Priesthood, it would be no different than the rebellion of Korah, or Dotham, or Abiram, who the earth swallowed them up because God was so angry at the wicked presumption. See, in the New Testament, Ephesians 4, 
11 and 12 says this, and he gave apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers, for the equipping the saints of the work of service to building up the body of Christ. So we act, again, the apostles were those who established the church, the foundation we see. Then there were prophets, again, those who wrote the scripture. And we have evangelists today. Some are very gifted. They just simply will give a testimony and hundreds will get saved. Greg Laurie is one of those people that has a gift of evangelism. Then there are those that are pastors. Those are just shepherds. They're, they're loving. They're watching over the flock of God. And then there's those that are teachers. And sometimes the pastor teachers in some scriptures are, are together. They're a person is to be a pastor teacher. There's one office, and sometimes some people separate those two. Again, Hebrews 4.14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold that confession. Let's trust in that. Well, let's look at his perfection or the perfect person. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And that's important. See, Jesus is without sin. And the world has a hard time with that. Even some people in the church have a hard time with the fact that Jesus is without sin. So what is he saying when he, when he talks about this? That it's, it's so important. Again, in verse 15, we do not have a priest who cannot sympathize with weakness, it's describing everything that Jesus went through. He can identify. Here together are his human name, as I mentioned, and Jesus, his divine title, we saw in verse 14, and his nature is also reflected in verse 15. And we see that humanity, that he suffered like you and I suffer in many ways and those people around us. For the most part, people seem to think that God is far removed from human life. He, he doesn't understand. He doesn't know what I'm going through. And at the word referred that God is flesh and he dwelt among them. Both in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 describe again the, the temptation of Christ. Well that takes us back to 1 John chapter 2 verse 16. For, for all that is the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is all from is not from the Father, but from the world. So Jesus was tempted in these three areas, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Just as Adam and Eve was in the garden, just as you're tempted. Every one of us are confronted with temptation every single day. Sometimes it may be that you have a dream and you wake up and you have these thoughts in your mind, what are you going to do with them? And they will go back to these three things. Well, Jesus... In his humanity, he was tempted the same way. It doesn't mean that he experienced every little emotion, but everything in each one of these areas, he understands what it's like for the temptation to be, affect his flesh. He can sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because he has this flesh, while it was without sin, he didn't have this inherited sin, yet the capacity of this flesh desires to sin. Every one of you desire 
to sin. Oh, you don't think I, I, I want to sin, but you have desires that are sinful. This is what this flesh is weak. It's something that's in us. Jesus can sympathize. Because he can sympathize, he can be perfectly merciful, faithful, have a perfect understanding of what you're going through. Someone might tell me something and I can listen and I can feel the pain, the grief, the sorrow. But if I've never gone through that, I, I cannot understand. But Jesus understands. That's the point that it's making here. Jesus was human in every way. Think of at Lazarus. When Lazarus died, Jesus' body shook with grief. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was going to the cross, he, he sweat like drops of blood. knowing what lay before him. He experienced every kind of temptation, every kind of testing, every kind of circumstance that every person would ever face. But now he's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and me. Father, I know what this is like. I know what they're going through. And that's so important that he can be that sympathetic high priest. He, he's sympathetic, understanding those weaknesses. And then he can use those weaknesses. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, notice what it says. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which our services, or our, excuse me, ourselves are comforted by God. So God comforts us, meets us right where we're at. But God didn't meet me there. Well, were you waiting for him? Were you looking for him? And sometimes people are looking in the wrong places. They're not looking to him. They say they are. But when you look to him, when you call on his name, he is there. When Peter was walking in the water, he says, Lord, save me. And the Lord saved him. Sometimes people are just too stubborn and they're not willing to let God save them. Again, weakness doesn't refer directly to sin, but that, that feebleness, that infirmity, that liability that you're bent towards sin. And Jesus understood that, that drive of human nature that was in him. Then Jesus, in his own way, went through, in his humanity, went through the, the battlefield, battled with sin. But he was victorious. He was tempted, the Bible says. And tempted in those same three areas, but he was victorious. He was without sin, even though he went through the most intense temptation and grief and anguish. In all of his struggle, he was without sin. His sinlessness increased. And as it did, his sensitivity to sin was more aware. Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4 says this, For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against him, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding the blood in striving against sin. Well, we now come to his perfect provision 
It's in verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. It's a song we used to do years ago, and it was, Jesus, you're my hideaway. He's your tower, strong tower. He's your hiding place in the scripture. And he is. He's, he, we run into him. We find comfort in him. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There's no temptation has overtaken you, but as such is common to all men. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. So the question is, do you really believe that word? See, if we're literalists and we take that, God says you're not going to be tempted beyond. He's saying, if you trust me, you will not have to sin. But sometimes what we do is we, we give in to sin. God's always given us an opening, a way to get out, a way to avoid it. See, we walk into sin. We don't fall into sin. We walk into sin. We walk in with open eyes. God always gives us a warning, gives us a way out, so we don't have to do that. See, Jesus Christ knows our temptations. He's willing, he's able to lead us out of those trials, those temptations. And it begins by you and I making a decision first before we're even in those situations. Let us keep on coming to this high priest who's a sympathetic high priest. Instead of deserting him, let us make a daily use of him. See, again, these were the people he's writing to. They were wanting to go back out in Judaism. We'll, we'll see that more as we go down the road, as we look more at it. But he's enough. Well, let's look again as we come to God's throne of grace. Again, the Holy Spirit appeals to those who are undecided. They're sitting on the fence. They, they haven't really accepted Christ as Savior. They're, they're coming. They're congregating. They're, they're saying the right words, but they've never really made a commitment in their heart. And what they do is they, they, they keep on going back to Judaism. But they should be holding on to their confession of Christ, hanging on to him, believing and trusting. They should be drawing near and in confidence to that throne of grace, knowing that they can come into his presence. I love the, the book of Esther, a great little book, and Esther's put in this situation. She was born for such a time as that, to save again the Israeli people, or the Hebrew people at that time. And she has to go before the king. And, and she just couldn't walk up before the king. She had, he had to, again, put his scepter out. And she's fearful, well, if I die, I die. I'm going to go, we don't need him to lay out his scepter. We simply run into his presence. When Jesus died, the veil was torn, meaning we have direct access. Boldly go to that throne of grace. And that is so wonderful that here's the encouragement that I can go to God in any time, any circumstance, in the midst of sin, in the midst of not in sin. I have access. I don't need to make appointment. God, I need you. And he hears and he responds. 
I don't need to worry, is someone going to stop me? Because he desires to hear. Any sincere person, no matter how sinful, undeserving, can approach the throne of God at any time for forgiveness and salvation. He chooses not to hear the prayer of one who is not seeking him in forgiveness and salvation. But if a person is sincere and they call out, he hears that, they boldly go to that throne. He, his ears pop up. It doesn't matter whether they're on a mountaintop. It doesn't matter what language they know. It doesn't matter how much you know. God will reveal himself to them. Every person, no matter what their past is, they can receive mercy and grace in a time of need. That's the God that you and I know. See, it's these things. It's not the, uh, again, escapism, wanting to, you know, well, I, I got my ticket out of jail free. But God is so good. Sometimes hell doesn't scare people. It doesn't. Or they wouldn't live the life they live. And I know in my own life, thinking how unworthy I was. But when someone explained that God loved me, when he explained the simplicity of John 3.16, that God could forgive my sins and I could have a relationship with them. I could know his love. That was the motivation to come. And see, this is really the approach he's trying to bring us into the presence. Hey, it's not about getting out of hell free. It's about having this vital, living relationship with God. Undeserving as you are, yes. But God desires that relationship that you can boldly, confidently come to the God who loves you. The God who loves you and accepts you just as you are. And the way that we come is we come by the sacrifice of Christ himself. Ephesians 2, 18 and 19 says this, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens of saints, who are God's household. How? Again, by Christ's sacrifice of himself, God's throne of judgment is turned to a throne of grace, to those who will come to him and trust in him, cry out to him. And as a Jewish high priest once uh, once a year for centuries, sprinkled the, the blood. It was all picturing what he would do, that he would come once and once for all, and he would be that perfect provision. It's the throne of grace. Now, how could anyone really reject such a high priest? This is what he's saying, and such a savior, who not only permits us to come to the throne of grace for help, but, but pleads that we would come boldly and confidently to him. 